Any poet probably fears sentimentality, but as Dick Hugo always used to say, if you're not willing to risk sentimentality, you're not likely to get anywhere. You need poems that feel very, very deeply. Hello and welcome to The Right Question, a radio program and podcast featuring authors from the American West and beyond. Our funding comes from Humanities Montana and members of Montana Public Radio and from the Greater Montana Foundation, encouraging communication on issues, trends, and values of importance to Montanans. I'm Lauren Korn, speaking with Idaho-based poet and essayist Robert Wrigley, author of the essay collection Nemrov's Door. At once both a collection of close readings and memoir, Nemrov's Door consistently asks the how and the why of poetry. How does a poem become a poem? Why is a poem a poem? His 12th book of poetry, The True Account of Myself as a Bird, is forthcoming from Penguin Random House in June 2022. Robert, welcome to The Right Question. Thank you. It's good to be here. Robert, what is the difference between an essay and a poem? That's a really good question because, as you know, uh, one of the essays in this book is a poem. Essay comes from the French essayer, the verb meaning to to try to attempt, and poems to try to attempt some kind of wisdom, some kind of conclusion, some kind of musical apparatus. Essays do the same thing, but uh, in the tradition of the essay, the language goes all the way from one side of the page to the other relentlessly. And for a poet, that's an odd way to think. That's an odd way to try to think and to try to make a kind of sense. For me, poetry is is my métier. It's, it's the way I work. It's the way I think. It's the way I explore. And uh, prose is the way I think about what I've tried to explore or study, if that makes any sense. Hmm. Yeah, I think I get that. Poetry is the way you think. Prose is the way you think about the way you are thinking. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't mean to be uh, circular about it, but the, the fact of the matter is there is nothing that prose does that poetry can't do. There's nothing that poetry does that prose can't do. The difference is that one of them is verse, one of them is written in lines, and the other is written primarily in sentences that go from one side of the page to the other page, and it doesn't matter where the ends of lines of prose end, and it matters a very, very great deal where lines of poetry end. So mm -hmm. the tensions in how the language approaches a particular idea or a particular assertion are vastly different, even though the syntax is the same. Would you say then that poetry and essays or poetry and prose, they operate with different logics, perhaps then? I think that's a good way to put it. In an essay in Nemirov's Door, titled Of Failure and Shadows, you write, I used to complain that I didn't have time to write what I wanted. And while no doubt that was true, it is more accurate to say that I didn't know what it was I wanted to do as a poet. So, Robert, you are now 12 books deep as a poet. What is it you want to do now? Keep writing. I mean, fundamentally, that's that's it. There's a way, it, it's a way of being alive that I've never found any other way of living to be able to duplicate. 
I mean, you can see something, some fabulous vista. You can come over the knob south of St. Ignatius and see the Mission Mountains just loom up in front of you and say, I've now arrived at some point of transcendence in my life. You can see someone you, you love to the greatest extent you are capable of loving and feel that love and that extent in that perception. Poetry, the endeavor of it, the trying to make the poem out of language, even though you don't know exactly where you're going with it, is a very similar kind of endeavor. And uh, I still don't know what it is I want to do as a poet other than to make poems and to surprise myself. The title essay of this collection, Nemrov's Door, focuses on a spontaneous road trip you took with your father to visit the poet Howard Nemrov. And you've written in this particular essay, you've written it in the second person. Why the shift from the first person I that populates the rest of these essays in the book, why the shift to the you? Especially, and this is maybe me reading or projecting, why do that, especially when so directly speaking about your father? There are two parts to this answer. The, the, the first part has to do with it was a stroke of genius to put that essay in the second person. But it was not my stroke of genius. It was my wife's. Kim Barnes, who is a writer of nonfiction and fiction, and who just suggested, have you ever thought about putting this essay in the second person? And I thought to myself, huh. And then I started doing it, and it changed everything. What it did was give me a little bit of distance that I would not otherwise have had. And it allowed me not so much distance from my father and writing about our relationship, but distance from myself so that I could perceive myself as a young man entering poetry and my father as a young middle-aged man whose son was entering poetry. As I, when asked to define poetry, Frost said, it's the sort of thing poets write. For my father, it was the sort of thing his son wrote. I mean, I was the only poet he ever read. How, how cool is that? But I think the second person allowed me uh, just that kind of significant distance to make it appear or at least to feel as though I were being as objective as I could possibly be about that experience. Is there something inherently sentimental about poetry or something in its concision inherently counter to sentimentality? And I'm wondering what responsibility the poet has to move beyond sentimentality. That's really a great question, Lauren. I think that any poet probably fears sentimentality, but as Dick Hugo always used to say, if you're not willing to risk sentimentality, you're not likely to get anywhere. By which he meant you, you need poems that feel very, very deeply. But you can't ask the reader to feel what the reader is incapable of feeling without your leading the reader to that sense of feeling, making the reader feel it, not just telling the reader how you feel. And that's that's an enormous responsibility. And, and I, I don't think very many poets actually manage to get through an entire career without occasionally waxing sentimental. But they try very hard to, to, to not wax sentimental. But the idea that, that one must risk sentimentality is a great idea and one that I think poets are aware of all the time and thinking of ways around and thinking of ways to deal with and counter, but they're, they're also risking it. <laughs> 
trying to feel, trying to make people feel. How do you risk sentimentality in your poetry? There's not a lot of subjects I won't write about. In the poem in which my daughter asks if the wonders if the the wind is a girl, I think that poem risks sentimentality throughout because it's dealing with the way children respond to the world itself. Not simply my daughter wondering if the world if the wind was a girl, but my kids had this sense, and I think all children have this sense that everything has a fully developed consciousness just as they do. So that when you throw a rock and it skips across the water, they wonder if the rock is having fun. If the, You can hear the rock squealing, wee, as it skims across the water. Or if the horse not only enjoys its own running, if the field or the, or the pasture across, or the trail across which it runs doesn't feel that joy as well. That these things are somehow communicable feelings among the inanimate objects and animate objects of the world. And that's, once again, I think inherently sentimental. I mean, it's a childish way of looking at the world, and yet it's such a beautiful way of looking at the world. I feel as though, um, and this is maybe an environmentalist view, but rather than say it's a childish view to, to imagine the inanimate objects of the world feeling, I feel like our environment, our world, our earth would be in such better shape if we went about our days believing that that were the case. Yeah, I, uh, I talk to trees. The trees communicate back to me, but they communicate back to me in, a, in their language, not mine. But I have a, we have a particularly big bull pine, a yellow pine, ponderosa pine, that's maybe 10 feet from our house. It used to be two. There, I can't remember what two conjoined trees are called. They had grown together as young trees. The one had a kink in it, and it was leaning over the house. And if it broke there, which would be the likeliest place for it to break, the top two-thirds would come down on the house and take out all three bedrooms and wipe out the entire family. So we had a sawyer come in and fall the tree, and I had to go down and express my regret and bereavement to the tree that still stood. They were partnered trees, but I couldn't have one killing me or my wife or my children. So uh, I had to go down and talk to the trees. I'm not embarrassed by that at all. I find that uh, I found trees, uh, I find them still perfectly good audiences, great readers, great listeners. And I have an, another tree that, that's right by our deck, six inches from our deck, that I can go to the edge of the deck and put my hands about two-thirds of the way around my arms, two-thirds of the way around, and just embrace for all, keep my cheek against its bark. And the bark of the yellow pine tree smells like vanilla with a hint of cinnamon, and I just breathe, and I just breathe. And whatever consolation is in those smells is the sort of thing I, I, I'd like for a poem to be able to do for a reader. I've got a poem, I don't remember what book it's in, called uh, Dream of the Tree, in which a man falls asleep, leaned against a tree, takes a nap, and he dreams he is the tree. And that's been a very successful poem. It's been translated into several languages. I don't know if the translations are any good, but apparently people respond to them. Uh, and it's about communing with a natural thing. I've got a poem in the new book that's about sort of a conversation with a landslide. It's not a big one. 
but it's it's impressive to watch a landslide, a rock slide, if you want to call it that. That's what the, the, the back matter on the new book has to do with the idea of speaking to or singing to things to hear them sing back. Robert, will you read something from Nemirov's door? I'm hoping you might be willing to read at least part of Arrowhead. Okay. This is called Arrowhead, and it is dedicated to my children, an essay, even though it's in verse and stanzas, as an explanation of Idaho, my home state, where I've lived for, well, 40-odd years. Foolishness to think it could be explained any more than Massachusetts or Maine. But know this, that its boundaries like theirs are imaginary and political, that it resembles Montana and spoons its eastward front there too is, in truth, mostly incorrect, or that it imagines itself what it was, which was, before it was, almost no ones but the ravens who outnumber its people even today. What has come to be known as Utah is a growth upon its rump, or it is, upon Utah's narrow head, a tumor fed by methamphetamine, beer, and the Church of Latter-day Saints. That I have never known a Mormon I did not like immensely, except certain senators. This can be explained. It is history. That Idaho has, in its history, elected senators of considerable greatness, but not for a long time, not, at least, for most of my life here and none of yours that the state is an embarrassment and a joy. It has been dragged into the century before this one well underway, its notions of liberty circumscribed by fearful ideas of stricture and malignity, usually religious, which in this republic have not, will not, and cannot be explained, that its rivers are among the purest and most beautiful in the republic, that it was established by the republic it hardly seems to want to be a part of any more, that it has a town called Dixie and a river called the Secesh, short for secessionist, but also a Yankee fork of the salmon, and that the salmon is its greatest river, named for a noble anadromous fish, most wild examples of which are gone from it. That this is in part the fault of the republic it once prided itself on belonging to. And it goes on. I admit... Uh, when I published this book, I hoped that there would be some kind of response to that poem and that it might outrage certain people in Idaho. But it hasn't happened. They, they don't read poetry or essays, so oh well. How is a poem like an arrowhead? How is it deadly? I don't know. Wallace Stevens has a poem called Poetry is a Destructive Force, which ends like a lion lying in, its, in the sun, its paws its chin on its paws, something, something, it can kill a man. Which, of course, the it refers both to poetry, which is the subject of the poem, but also to the lion. And uh, oh, what's his name? John Dryden. John Dryden wrote a poem that destroyed a, a John, oh, I can't remember the other, the poet laureate at the time, but he was not the poet Dryden was and never would be. And uh, Dryden wrote a, a mock epic poem that just destroyed the other poet's career. And I wouldn't whenever write a poem that would destroy another poet's career, but I would like to write a poem that destroyed the career of certain political figures. And maybe that's what I was aspiring to in, in 
at some level in the poem essay Arrowhead that I wished people to to look at the state of Idaho, which is a magnificent state, which I love dearly, and I love its people. But there's something about the state that is grotesque. Montana's got the same thing. Wyoming's got the same problem. Most of the 50 states have that problem at some level or another. Well, the cure for democracy is always more democracy, but the cure for what afflicts democracy in the 21st century is not nearly so clear. As much as anything, I would like to draw people's attention to that in a poem. In a poem essay. In a poem essay. Essay poem. If you're just joining us, you're listening to a conversation with Idaho-based poet and essayist Robert Wrigley, author of Nemerov's Door. I'm Lauren Korn. This is The Right Question. Our full conversation can be found online at mtpr.org, where you can also subscribe to our podcast and follow us on Facebook. There are so many mentions of songs and music in this essay collection, including an essay about Frank Sinatra, an essay about love songs, an essay you write about Robert Frost, uh, revising his sound of sense into your own music of sense. And you have a forthcoming book of poems, The True Account of My Life as a Bird, in which, as the jacket copy states, you transcribe the consciousness and significance of every singing thing in order to sing back. So I'm wondering about your relationship to music, and maybe more pointedly, what have you been listening to lately? I have stated on a number of occasions that to my way of thinking, music is the greatest art, and that the human voice is the most beautiful instrument. I listened yesterday about six or seven times to a a group of young men from Dallas, Texas, called the King's Return, who sing in stairwells and record themselves singing in stairwells of buildings where the acoustics you would think would be terrible, but they're perfect for these guys. And uh, they did a version of four-part harmony, a cappella, just the four of them in a stairwell doing Ave Maria, Franz Schubert. And it sends chills up your spine. And it made me once again believe what I've always maintained, that music is the, is the highest art. I also listen to Bill Evans pretty much every day, among the greatest of all jazz pianists, or gr- among the greatest of all pianists. But I listen to all sorts of music, and I, I play music not very well. I, when I was 17 or 18 years old, I was a pretty dang good guitarist. And then I stopped playing for about 30 years, and I lost much of it. Uh, but during those 30 years... I was trying to take poetry in the direction of music because poetry must aspire to the condition of music to be poetry. And there's a way in which prose, the best prose, also aspires to the condition of music. Maybe it's a different kind of music. It may be more orchestral. It may be more symphonic. It may just be a bigger work of music than a song. And the poem is closer to a song. And the poem that aspires to music and sometimes attains the condition of music, where people are wrapped up as much in the sound of the words as they are in what the words are saying, then I believe the poet has arrived somewhere special. You bring perhaps a mentor into 
the book of essays who says something very similar. It might be Richard Hugo that it's all about the music. That's really what it comes down to. It does. Dick Hugo used to say, he said in his book, The Triggering Town, which is one of the best books ever written about how you write poetry. If you get to a choice where you get to a situation or a point in a poem where you have to choose between music and meaning, tick music every time. Meaning will take care of itself. Music you have to attend to. I wish more people were still reading Richard Hugo. Uh, it seems sometimes that they are not, but there's, a, there's enough of us out there who are keeping his work and his memory in front of people because he was a great one, a very, very great one. You write about the triggering town in Nemerov's Door in the introduction essay. And I'm wondering how you view these two books side by side. Would you consider Nemerov's Door to be something like the triggering town? I would hope that it would be something like the triggering town. Uh, I think it's not because I tend to be a little bit more pedantic than Dick ever was. I tend to be a little bit more academic than Dick ever was. Although Dick was more academic than he liked to let on. Uh, he was very knowledgeable about poetry and knew a lot of, knew as much as most people writing poetry at the time did. But I aimed to write a book that might be as approachable as The Triggering Town. I don't think my book is as approachable as The Triggering Town, but that's just because I find The Triggering Town to be a masterpiece. And uh, I don't think I've written one of those yet. You were a student of Hugo's here at the University of Montana. How do you see his poetry in your own? And how do you see his pedagogy in your own? Well, I think anybody who, who spent time in the classroom with Dick Hugo tends to uh, regurgitate Dick uh, in class with a great deal of frequency. I mean, wait, this is a point where you got to pick music instead of meaning. This is a point where... Uh, well, or as Dick would say sometimes when you wrote, not a bad line, but a line that was just clumsy or something, you'd say, what'd you have to go and write that for? <laughs> and, I, and I would say those kinds of things to, to, to my students. But mostly, um, it just has to do with a particular kind of, of way of listening to, to the voice in your head, which is also the voice of the poem, trying to make itself clear to you, trying to articulate itself to you. I don't think that I write poems very often that are like Dick's poems. Once I went into Dick and I, I told, asked him an honest question. I said, here's the thing. It seems to me like everybody in the program and everybody in town who writes poems sounds like you. And he laughed and lit another cigarette. He already had one going, but he frequently had two going. And he laughed and he goes, what's wrong with that? And he laughed again and he said, yeah, that's true. He said, I've got a big and powerful voice and it tends to intoxicate people. And you remember, though, that you can't write like me because you're not me. You'll have to find your own way of writing. And you will or you won't. And if you don't, you won't succeed. If you do, you might. So I told him, I said, well, here's what I have in mind. I have in mind taking everything you can teach me and converting it to my own way of writing. He said, exactly. That's what you've got to do. So I did. And I think early on in The Triggering Town, Hugo says just that. Don't try to write like me. It's not going to work. Right. You can't write like me because you're not me. Right. What does luck have to do with poetry? Uh, 
Sometimes you luck into the right turn. You are you surprise yourself. Dick Hugo, I, see, I, like, so like I said, I always go back to Dick Hugo because he was a magnificent teacher. And he had a way of saying things that were brilliant without seeming lofty in any way. He would tell the story, I think it was Jack Nicholas or, or Arnold Palmer, who sinks this chip shot off, just off the green. It bounces two or three times, makes this long curving break, drops into the cup. Everybody responds with cheers and some fan yells from the, from the gallery, Hey, Arnold! Don't you think that last shot was a little bit lucky? And Arnold stops and says, oh, yeah, but I find the more I practice, the luckier I get. That's what Dick said about poetry. You, The only way to learn to write poems is to write poems. And the more you do it, the luckier you get. You avail yourselves of the possibility of luck. You avail yourself of the possibility of having Something come from some synapse somewhere in your brain that you would not have foreseen, that you could not have made up. It just pops in. You know, maybe I'll speak with you in a year from now when your new book of poetry is out. But would you be willing to read a poem from that book? Sure. Okay, this is a poem. This is the poem in which my daughter wonders about the, the gender of the wind. It's called The Consciousness of Everything. Consider the happiness of an empty hand from which the horse has taken a carrot, or the house that sits on once empty land and the land that now loves to bear it. What does sun feel for a shadow, the horse's hoof for the shoe of steel, which loves most for the car to go, the people inside or the wheels? The mirror, smitten with the left-handed man, offers a right-handed one in return. Spoon loves soup and soup the can, and the log in the stove lives to burn. Of its stink, the stink bug's especially fond, while stink's a fan of the stink bug, too. Frog spawn delights in the murk of the pond, and one is infatuated with zero and two. Two's enchanted by four and six, and all six sides love the cube. Snow digs cold and ice likes its slicks, but toothpaste despises the tube. My daughter asked, is the wind a girl? And I told her she sure must be, since wind is brave and travels the world, delighting her brother, the weather, and trees. Time's almost gone now when a stone could hurt, when a feather missed its wing, when sky kissed clouds and grass held dirt, and nothing thought itself just a thing. I take my time in the woods today, saying hello to every this and that, as though the world might still be that way, when my head beguiled my hat. There aren't that many poems that do that sort of thing. Most of the poems in the book, the new book, are free verse. But I want to write poems that people can memorize easily. I want to write poems that children can memorize easily. That seems like a great thing to aspire to. So I'm, 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 I'm working with rhyme and meter. And I mean, if you go to the poetry out, Poets Out Loud competitions where kids recite poems to win prizes and scholarships, it's, it's a marvelous, marvelous thing to watch a kid recite a poem. And the ones that, that move me most are the ones who have fallen under the spell of the poem. And sometimes that spell has entirely to do 
with the form of the poem. They're dancing as they read. I mean, you, you can see their, their voice dancing as they read or they recite. They're not reading. They're re they memorize the poems. Yeah, that's wonderful. What a great poem. Thank you for sharing that. You're very welcome. And listeners can expect to read your newest book of poetry, July 2022, June 2022? June 7th, 2022. That's so exciting. Congratulations. And congratulations again on Nemrov's Door. Thank you very much. You've been listening to The Right Question. The show is produced by Peter Hoag and me. I'm your host, Lauren Korn. Our recording engineer is Tom Barich. Funding for The Right Question is provided by the Greater Montana Foundation, encouraging communication on issues, trends, and values of importance to Montanans. Many thanks to Humanities Montana for supporting this program since 2008, and thank you for listening. The Right Question is a production of Montana Public Radio.